to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, 2 through 12. <laughs> 1 through 12, I was, there you go. Read the screen. That's the correct information. So grab your Bibles. Make sure you open them. You're going to want to be in your Bibles. Lydia's going to come, and she's going to read for us from God's Word this morning. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thank you, Lydia. And thank you, everybody, for following along in your scriptures. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, we just read that passage last week. And next week, because you're going to be here, because this is the place to be on Sunday mornings, you're going to be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, we read that passage again. This is the third time we're reading this passage. And guess what we're going to be doing? We're going to be going a little bit deeper each time and then ending on that week's gift that was offered to the Christ child. So here we are again. We're in Matthew chapter 2. We're in verses 1 through 12. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a sneak peek. Here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the incredible fact that when people hear the good news of Jesus Christ, some are troubled by it and some are moved to worship. Now, my question is going to be asked now and then at the end of this, which camp are you in? Are you troubled by the good news of Jesus Christ or does it move you to worship? So I want you to think, I want you to pay attention to what's going on inside of your heart and I want you to watch as we go through this yourself carefully and let's see which one you are, troubled or worshipful. All right, I've got two points for you today, and we're going to get rolling as we get going. The first point, very simply, is this. The gospel is disturbing to people who will not believe. 
The gospel is disturbing to people who will not believe. So let's climb into the text, and let's let the Word of God speak to our hearts. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. All right, so let's get rolling, because I really want to unpack both Herod, who was he, what was he like? I want you to intimately know Herod the king. And then we're going to unpack the wise men a little bit more. Who were these people? Why did they make it this far? Why did they even come from where they were to where they went? And then we're going to look at that gift that they offered secondly, the frankincense. What's the significance of that gift? Well, no one knows for certain. By the way, I find that this is actually not known by everybody. Did you know that we don't actually know for certain the time of Christ's birth? It really wasn't, we know for fact, 0 AD. It was not really then at all. It was likely between 5 and 8 BC. 5 and 8 BC. And how do we know that? Well, we know that Herod the Great, Herod the King, verse 1, died in 4 BC. So he had to be Jesus, born at least 5 B.C., possibly 8, I think, closer to 7. But who knows? It doesn't really matter. But we know that Herod the king is in the text. And according to one historian, whose name was Herodotus, Herod the king was called Herod the Great. Now, why was he called Herod the Great? It's because he's the oldest of all of the sons of his father Antipater, which I'll tell you a little, about, a little bit about in a minute, he was known, actually, did you know this, as an incredible athlete, particularly with the javelin and the bow. He was an incredible athlete. He was a prolific builder. He was a genius engineer. This is Herod the Great. His father, Antipater, was a very successful general whose loyalty to Rome earned him a massive position of leadership, and he was instrumental in making his son Herod the governor of Galilee when he was 25 years old. That's astounding. That's very young to be a governor. That's the age of Herod when he became governor of Galilee. Well, he did so well as a governor of Galilee that the Roman Senate made him the king of Judea when he was 36 years old, and he ruled for 33 years. That's a really long kingship. You see, what Rome required, and I want you to know this about Rome, it really wasn't that complicated. They had kings all over their empire, hundreds of them. And in this troublesome area of Israel, and here's why I say it was troublesome, because the Jewish people would never willingly bow to Roman rule. They hated them. In fact, there was a group within Israel called the Zealots. Some people, and I don't know if it's true, think that Peter, the apostle, 
was one of this group. We don't really know, but these zealots, we do know, had a subgroup that were assassins. And what they would do is they would hold a knife under their cloak, and when they went into a crowd and there was a Roman person, they would sneak up behind and thrust the knife into their kidney, pull it out, and walk away, and that Roman person would quickly die there. And this was constantly a problem. The Jewish people would not willingly bow to Rome. So what Rome required, and if you could do this, you're going to get a lot of favor from the Roman emperor, are three things. Number one, now you hear, listen to this. Number one, can you keep the Pax Romana? That's Latin. Everybody say that with me, Pax Romana. You just spoke Latin. This is so exciting. It means the peace of Rome. And if you can put down uprisings, and if you can put down the revolts, then you are going to gain and curry the favor of Rome. Well, there's another thing that you've got to be able to do. Can you be loyal as a king to Rome? Can you carry out what Rome wants? Can you speak well of the emperor? Now, if you can do those two things, you're really going to get a lot of loyalty from the emperor of Rome. But there's a third one, and you're going to understand this if you're an adult, because you do it even now. Can the king of Israel make sure that everybody pays their taxes? Because the emperor wanted the Roman bank full of money. So if you can keep the peace, if you can be loyal and a friend to the emperor, and if you can make sure that the taxes are being paid, you're going to be given a lot of autonomy as a ruler in your region. Now, Herod the Great was really good at all three of them, and he was given that autonomy, and that's a terrible, terrible thing for Israel, and here's why. Herod was psychotic. He was a murderer. He killed his first wife, Marion May I, after he killed her brother and soon killed her mother, and he killed three of his own boys. Among a whole lot of other people whose death he arranged. This was Herod because he was paranoid of always losing his throne. Did you know that his father, whom I introduced to you a moment ago as Antipater, did you know that he was assassinated with poison? And whenever, when that happened, it induced or it put into Herod this paranoia that somebody is always going to try to kill him. And so he always protected his throne, and he just simply killed anybody he felt was a threat. But you see, he was despised by the Jewish people. He was despised. While he was loved by the emperor of Rome, he was despised by the people of Israel. Now it's into this hotbed of political turmoil in Israel, verse 2 happens. Now look with me. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now I want you to imagine what goes through this psychotic, paranoid mind of Herod when these wise men from the Parthian Empire, modern, western, Iran, and Iraq, say to him, ask him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is a threat to his kingdom. 
Now, you don't really need to imagine what goes through his mind because look at verse 3. The Bible tells us, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Now, there's two ways to understand that phrase, all Jerusalem with him. Ready? Number one, it's all of the people in Jerusalem. They all heard about this, and a big rumor mill happened, and they all began to be troubled by this. But the other one, and I actually think it's a little more this one, is the leadership of Jerusalem. The leaders of Jerusalem. And they were all troubled. Herod was troubled, verse 3, and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod had called together, verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, I'm going to show you something that I wonder, despite the dozens of times you've read this passage for many of you, have you ever noticed what Matthew really wrote? Well, let me tell you this first before I even tell you that. Look at the word troubled. You're going to understand this really well because if you go home today and you take out a pot and you boil water and all those bubbles begin to froth up to the surface, that's literally the word troubled. That was how that word was used, one of the applications. It means the boiling water in a pot. Emotionally, it means you are greatly agitated. You are boiling within. But now I want you to see what maybe you never noticed. You see, the wise men from Parthia asked Herod where the king of the Jews was to be born. But Herod asked his wise men where the Christ was to be born. And those are two totally different people. Who is Christ? Well, Christ, some people don't know this. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Like Ackley is the last name of Tim, my name. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. And it's a title in the Bible for the anointed redeemer sent by God. In other words, you can shorten that to one word. It's a title for the Messiah. You see, the heart of Herod, now you got to get this, and if you've never seen this before, now you'll understand why we're talking about when some people hear the good news of Jesus Christ, they are troubled, because the heart of Herod was troubled not really or not only by the news of the birth of the king of Jews, he was troubled by the birth of the Christ, the deliverer sent by God. Now, I want you to think about this, and I want you to watch yourself carefully. Because as I'm going to tell you in the end of this message, I'll introduce now. You're either in one group or the other. There isn't a third option. You're either troubled by the good news of Jesus Christ or it leads you to worship. Now, if you're troubled, I'll tell you why you're troubled. You were created by a creator that put a design in you to worship him. You cannot eradicate that design. All you can do is drown it with frenetic busyness in the things of this world. You cannot do away with it. And if you drown the impulse to worship your creator, you will only begin to worship a creation. 
And if that is you, that you have not obeyed, that you have not wanted to worship the Creator, and instead you've begun worshiping the Creator, and you hear a sermon like this that tells you that the Savior, the Redeemer of all the world, the Creator has come, and He will judge you, and He exacts from you, He requires from you, He desires from you your worship, well, that's rather troublesome to a person who's trying to drown out their very design. So watch your heart carefully. This was Herod. He did not want to bow to the king of all kings. He didn't want to bow to his creator. He wanted to be his own God. He wanted to be on the throne. He wanted the crown on his head. Listen, he wanted to be in control of his life. He wanted to be God. Some of you may be just like him. And if so, I have very good news because you're going to see in point number two, the gospel is beautiful to those who believe. The gospel is beautiful to those who believe. Now, something you want to know when you read this passage today, next week, or into the future, all the entire ancient world at this time was abuzz with an excitement of imminent global change. There was an anticipation, and it all centered, listen to this, on Judea. Now, where is Judea? All right, let me put a map in your head, all right? I'm going to give you the land of Israel at the very northern part where the Sea of Galilee was. That's a freshwater lake, 13 miles from top to bottom, six and a half from east to west. All the way up in Galilee, you've got the, the area where Jesus actually was raised. But all the way down at the bottom of Israel was Judea, where the city of Jerusalem was, and the city of Bethlehem six miles south, and that's the place Jesus was born. He's born in southern Israel, raised in northern Israel, and it's 75 to 80 miles from one to the other. Right in the middle of them was the area of Samaria, and that's where the Samaritans lived. The Jewish people hated the Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jewish people. Here we are, these wise men, they come down into Judea, Jerusalem, and then Bethlehem. And the whole world was anticipating that something was going to happen worldwide. Did you know this? Worldwide. And it was going to be, and Judea was going to be the focal point of everything. I'll give you two examples. The Roman historian Suetonius wrote, There had spread over all of the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. This is not a Christian that wrote this. This is a Roman historian. And he's speaking of some cataclysmic global event that's going to happen in Judea. There's another historian. Again, his name is Herodotus. And at that time, he wrote, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. I'm only giving you two examples. There are a lot of examples of this global excitement that a king was coming from Judea, and he was born at that time. And the entire globe was going to be impacted by him. But we've got a group of wise men. 
And I've got to tell you something about the ancient world. You know, if you went to Giant up in Forks right now, and you drive out of there, and you get to the light across from that is the, uh, the tire place. To the right of it used to be uh, Rita's, right? Not gonna, it's not there anymore. If you are right at that light, you're going to see a lawn placard, a lawn sign that says astrologer and then the number. Astrology, friends, don't answer this. Don't answer this. How many of you have been to an astrologer in the last month? Don't answer that. Listen, if you have, though, come see me. I got to talk to you. All right? I want to tell you one thing. Every astrologer that I've ever heard of lives in a trailer park. I don't know how they know the future. All right, that was a little free humor. What was astrology in the ancient world? Well, it's a little bit different than it is now, but not completely dissimilar. Here's what they did. They believed that the movements of stars and planets and cataclysmic events like eclipses and even volcanic eruptions all heralded divine omens. That was the way that God were speaking. I'll put it this way. If you're walking across a field and an asteroid comes down and falls on you, your very last thought's going to be, God, you just spoke to me. All right? That's just the way that they looked at these things. They were omens. And so the wise men are from Parthia. And Parthian Empire is the only threat to the Roman Empire. They're massive. Here's how you get there. You go north hundreds of miles from Jerusalem to the tip of the Arabian Desert, and then you hang a right and go east 100 of miles to west in Iran and Iraq. It was the Old Testament place of Babylon. And it was a massive empire, and that's where it's believed these wise men were from. And they were kingmakers. Do you realize that no king was allowed to take the throne of Parthia without the wise men giving him a reference, without the authority of the wise men? That's how powerful they are. These are God-fearing, these wise men, God-fearing scientists, astrologers, scholars. They knew the Old Testament. In fact, they knew a little tiny prophetic pronouncement given by a prophet who was not a very good one of God called Balaam. And he wrote this in Numbers chapter 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Jerusalem. In other words, Balaam said, I see one coming, but it's a ways away. He's not near, but a great ruler. That's what a scepter was in place of the king, a symbol of the king, a great ruler, a great king shall rise out of Israel. The wise men knew it. Now, interestingly enough, we don't know how many wise men there were. If you have a manger scene with three wise men offering gifts to the baby Jesus, do yourself a favor and take a sledgehammer to it. All right, you don't really need to do that, but it's inaccurate on every level. I'll tell you why, because we don't know how many wise men there were. The, the, the people arrive at three because they offered three gifts. But the legends are that there were a lot of them, and they even named some of them. I'll even give you their names, and I'll even tell you what the legends say that they give. Melchior gave the gold. Casper gave the frankincense. And Balthasar the, the myrrh. And it says that even, they, they even believe that their bones are interred today in Germany. 
We don't know. Likely, there is a large entourage. These are wealthy, powerful men. I very much doubt they're taking all of these priceless possessions that were gifts to the Christ child and traveling alone. I'm sure they had soldiers. I'm sure they had servants. They make the trip. It's about 650 at least miles from where they were to Jerusalem. And then they take the six miles south to get to Bethlehem. How did they go there? Well, a star was leading them. I think it's the same Shekinah glory that led the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land for 40 years. A pillar of cloud by day, but a pillar of fire by night. Where that star moved, they followed. And that star eventually stopped over. Over a home in Bethlehem. Now, you remember, he's not a baby anymore. They're not in a cave. They're not in a manger. He's not being laid in a manger. He's a toddler. He's one to two years old. They're living, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, in a home. And they knock on the door, and they go in, and they see there the Christ King. And when they saw him, look what it says in verse 11. The wise men fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about the Parthian Empire. Did you know that if you were greeting somebody living in now modern Western Iran or Iraq from the Parthian Empire. Did you know if you were greeting somebody that was of the same rank as you, the way you would greet them, guy or girl, was with a kiss on the lips? Now, we believe, Peter says, that we are a priesthood of all believers. Even though I'm elevated on this stage, it's only purely for you to be able to see me. If I didn't need to be, I'd be down there. There's no rank superiority between me, even the lead pastor. It doesn't matter. And you in the pew. We are of the same rank. Now, I bring that point out to say this. You do not and you must not greet me with a kiss on the lips. All right? Just make sure you do not do that. But if you're greeting somebody where the difference was a slight rank difference, the way that you greeted was a kiss on the cheek. This is true. Now watch this. If you're greeting somebody who is vastly superior to you, here's what you would do. You would get before them, you would fall down onto the ground, and then with your hand, you would be blowing kisses to them. Blowing kisses to them. That's how they greeted Jesus. He's a one to two year old toddler. And they fall down before him according to Parthian custom. They knew they were in the presence of someone vastly superior to them. And they fell down and worshiped him. And then they rose and gave gifts. And last week we saw the first one, the gold. Now let me tell you again about the Parthian empire. This was a law on their law books. That if you appear before a Parthian king, you must always, or you will be executed, bring a gift. And the only gift that was really suitable for a king in the empire of Parthia was gold. 
They traveled all of that distance, and the very first gift that they offered was a gift to gold, and what they're speaking, what they're saying, whether they understood it fully or not, is that we are in the, we are in the presence of the king. Now imagine what faith that takes to bow down before a one- to two-year-old toddler. Think of that in your mind. Think of a one-year-old. And you bow down before them and worship. That's faith. They had faith. And it's the way that we've got to come to Jesus. Peter says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, as King. You cannot come to Jesus for salvation thinking that the rank is only slight difference or that you're on equal rank. No, he is vastly superior. And when you come to Jesus as your King for salvation, you fall down. Rather, it's in your heart figuratively or your body literally. You fall down before him and you suspend your self-will, your self-rights, and you say, you are king, I am not. You cannot come to Jesus for salvation thinking you're on equal rank. But they offered a second gift. And actually, if you want to come up after the service and look, it looks exactly like this. It's called frankincense. And frankincense has then in the ancient world and today a very interesting process of harvesting it. You probably have all heard of frankincense. It is a very hot-selling essential oil today. It promises to improve your mood, reduce your stress, even help you with your swelling. But that's not all. It fights infections, I guess. It aids digestion. It fades scars, heals wounds, even possibly prevents cancer. These are all the claims modern day of frankincense oil. But way before these modern claims, let me tell you a little bit more about it. Actually, maybe even a little more accurately. It was a coveted and expensive commodity. It comes from, and it did then as well, from Boswellian trees. They grow primarily in southern Arabia and the Horn of Africa, same as they do today. And there are actually, listen to this, there are actually frankincense farmers. Here's how they get it. They take a knife and they make vertical or rather angular slashes in the side of the tree, the bark of the tree. And then they put a piece of wood, like a piece almost like plywood, underneath it. And that the tree oozes out of those slashes the frankincense oil. It comes down on that, and it hardens into what are called, it's a resin, but they call them tears. Now, interestingly, the farmers call it striping. By his stripes, you will be healed. How interesting is that? It hardens into these tears, and then what they would do is they would pulverize it very much in crystal form like this, almost picture rock candy size. They pulverize it into a powder and they mix it with oil. They put it in a lot of things, but one of the things they do is they mix it with oil. Now in God's temple in the Old Testament, frankincense was mixed with, an, with oil. Now watch this because this is the main point. To anoint priests. To anoint a priest. What's it mean to anoint a priest? 
It means to recognize on them that the Spirit of God will be with that priest, and they are given the authority and the position of being a priest. And it's blended into meal offerings for gifts to God. Now, here is what's so interesting. The Bible says this in Leviticus 5, He shall put no oil on it, the priest, and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. All of the offerings had to be accompanied by, sprinkled by oil with frankincense, except for sin offerings. Why? You see, whether the wise men understood it or not, this frankincense was a gift for a priest who will administer redemption, but who will have never sinned. There will be no sin in him. He will be unblemished. He will be pleasing to his father. And he will be here on earth to perform the work of redemption. Now, what does redemption mean? It's a really an antiquated word, except for when you want to redeem a coupon. It means to purchase or buy back or to buy out. The word redemption is a word that means to buy out. You, bar, you are bought out when you are redeemed by Christ, out of slavery and death to sin and judgment to God. And you are bought into a family, adopted into that family, and given the blessings and the inheritance of your new family. To be redeemed is to be bought out of the world, out of the grip of the devil, out of the power of your flesh, and put into a new creation, made into a new creation, and sealed by the Spirit and blessed for eternity. That's what it means to be redeemed. And the one who would accomplish our redemption, listen, the one who will make redemption possible was that one to two-year-old toddler before whom the wise men worshipped. You see, he's not just our king. He's our high priest sent by God to make our redemption possible. Now, there's very interesting information I'm going to give you. The emperor on the throne of Rome when Jesus was born had the name of Gaius Octavian. That's what his birth name was. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, whom we've all heard of. And Julius Caesar, all of Rome considered him. He was the first one that Rome considered to actually be a god. And Octavian, his adopted son, renamed Augustus, which means worthy of worship, was called the divine son of God. In fact, an Egyptian inscription that's been recovered by archaeologists sees on it a, a writing that refers to Augustus as a star, and I'm quoting, shining with the brilliance of the great heavenly savior. So he's considered now, Augustus, both God and Savior. That's the one on the throne when Jesus was born. But let me take you 60 or 70 years future. There's another emperor on the throne. His name is Domitian. And Domitian, like Herod, was a madman. He was a murdering psychopath. And he enacted a law all over the Roman Empire, including Israel, that when the Roman official came, everybody, as surely as we have to pay, a ta pay taxes in America, everybody has to appear to worship Domitian 
as God and Savior. Here's how they did it. They put a portrait of Domitian on the wall, and they put in front of it a brazier, which is a pot of coal, of, of live burning coals. And then next to it's a basket or a container of frankincense. And what you had to do is come over to this basket, take a pinch of incense, frankincense, and bring it over the, the top of that brazier and sprinkle it into there so that it puffed up a fragrant smoke. And while you did that, you had to look at the, inscript, the, the artist, the portrait of, of, of Domitian, and you had to say, Caesar is God. Now watch. If you refused, you were put to death. And that's history. Do you know how many hundreds and even thousands of both Jews and Christians died, put to death by Rome, because they would not pinch the incense and worship the Caesar? You see, frankincense, the world over, was a symbol of a God. And not just a God, but the Savior. And not just the Savior, but the Redeemer, the one who would save everyone. So it leads me, as I get ready to close, the question that I asked you both at the beginning and then in the middle of this message. Which group do you belong to? Now, be really honest. I mean, it doesn't do you any good if you're pretending. Be really honest. When you hear the good news of the gospel as you were listening to this sermon, was there an agitation inside of you? Because I made some pretty exclusive statements. You can't come to Jesus for salvation and think you're on equal footing with him or that the difference in rank is slight. Oh, no, he is vastly superior. And unless you bow down to him and in faith submit your will to his, you cannot be saved. That's very exclusive, and you and I live and an inclusive world. Is there an agitation in your heart? Because the follow-up gift was this. You cannot come to Jesus, even if you think he is the creator God, without believing that he's come to redeem you by dying on that cross for you and coming out of that grave for your life. Oh, you just can't have, well, God is powerful, the gold, without the frankincense. God is the high priest who can accomplish my redemption. You see, they've got to go together. You can't have just one. And that, again, is exclusive. Are you agitated? Is there something boiling inside of you, troubling you? Well, that might be an indication that you need to come to Jesus for your salvation. You're either in that group or you're in the other group represented by the wise men who have gladly fallen down in faith and worshipped Jesus as both king and priest, as both ruler and creator and the one who's brought redemption to anyone who would believe. Which one are you in? Are you troubled or are you worshiping? If you're troubled... You are one prayer of faith away from becoming a worshiper. 
and you simply come and you say, Jesus, I'm finally there. You're my king and you're my savior. And I gladly worship you and you will be redeemed. And you will have a life in eternity of blessing. Let me pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we're seeing in this passage. And next week, we're going to go a little deeper, and we're going to see it a little bit differently as well. And Lord, I'm excited already for what we're going to talk about next week. And I, I hope and pray that everybody here or online comes again and sees the rich truths of the gospel displayed in this passage. Lord, I would pray for my friends that are here and maybe they've never bowed down before you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day because they're a prayer away of simply coming to you and saying, you vastly outrank me and I believe it. But I also believe that you're when my son and you've come to die on that cross and to be in that grave and to come out of it alive to give me salvation sent us his bring to be born in a the king for the rest of us let us be joyful let us believe and find somebody to share what we learned today somebody this week that we can say I learned this from the he was born